Welcome to the Axe 13 Network Podcast. My name is Dan Rose, and I am the lead troublemaker here at the Axe 13 Network. We're glad you have decided to spend a little bit of time with us. What can you expect from this podcast? Well, hopefully, you will walk away from it learning to love well. That's our heart, that's our hope, that's our desire. We want to try to help people love well by hearing the words of Jesus, learning the works of Jesus, and following in the way of Jesus. So let's get on to this week's episode. All right, well, hey, we are continuing again now in our study of the book of Acts. And uh, we are picking up right where we left off in Acts chapter 17. And uh, this, this might be one of my favorite passages in this entire book. If there is, if there is one part... Um, that seems to speak to my heart. It is, it is Paul in Athens. I just, I just love this. And, um, you know, this is probably one of those passages that not only captures my imagination, but has captured a number of other people's imaginations because there's so many churches named Mars Hill and that kind of thing, right? And so uh, that, is, that is where we are at. Uh, here as, as Paul shows up in Athens. Remember, uh, he had to be smuggled out of Berea uh, because people from Thessalonica were on their way to, you know, stone him and hurt him and all that kind of thing. And so the folks in Berea smuggle him out and get him into Athens. And uh, so now here he is at kind of the intellectual center of the world. I mean, if you think about, you know, maybe, maybe if you think about like the East Coast, right? You think about Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and you glumped them all into one spot, and all three universities were all right there together. That's kind of what Athens was like. You had some of the, the smartest philosophers and thinkers, people who people who are pondering big ideas and big thoughts. And uh, Athens was where it was at. So, uh, Paul shows up in Athens, and we pick up the tale here in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. It goes like this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, them being uh, Silas and Timothy, and probably Luke, uh, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's Word. Good stuff. Really good stuff. What's so interesting is what's not here. That, the, the thing that's most interesting really in this speech by Paul might be what's not here. Because this, this is Paul describing and explaining to the Athenians the unknown God. And so Paul shows up in Athens and does what any good missionary does. He starts kind of taking, taking in the lay of the land. He is trying to figure out this new people who, you know, from it appears that he's never been to Athens before. And so here he does, he shows up and he starts wandering around. And what does he find? He finds idols, tons of idols, statues and altars to all of these Greek gods and goddesses. And, and it says that his heart was deeply troubled. Now, throughout the book of Acts, remember, Luke is, Luke is really driving home this issue between the one true God and idol worship. This really is kind of the dividing thing for him. Right? I mean, even, and, and this, goes, this goes to the heart of the early church and what was happening there. Because remember, even from the, the, the letter of the Jerusalem council, what was, their count, what was the, the encouragement to the Gentiles? It was to not participate in idol worship. Right? That was, that was their big thing. That was their great concern. Follow Jesus and, and, and worship Worship Jesus alone. Worship the God of the Scriptures alone. Worship nobody else. Worship nothing else. Don't participate in idol worship. 
in any shape or form. And so this, this was a really big deal. This, this driving monotheism, right? And so as Paul shows up into Athens, he is confronted with polytheism in ways that he's probably not necessarily seen before. Or at least not to this extent. Sure, you know, growing up in Tarsus, you know, in a Roman city, he was, he was confronted with the Roman gods, but those were, they were kind of almost jokes. And yeah, there was emperor worship, but Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He lived and moved among the Jewish people. So he, he was a monotheist of the highest order. He was so zealous of his one true God, he even sought out to imprison and kill followers of Jesus before he became a follower of Jesus. Right? So this, this passion of monotheism, this idea of only there being one true God, it drove Paul. And so when he shows up to Athens and sees all of these idols, his heart is broken. He was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed. And we can't miss that. We cannot miss the heart of Paul here. His heart is broken for, this pe- for the people of Athens. Because they did not know the one true God. And so what does he do? He does what Paul always does. He goes and he finds the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue, right? And he starts talking to the Jews and the God-fearers in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel and telling them about Jesus. Now, one of the commentators I, I read, you know, he said he kind of wonders if Paul went in there and challenged them a little bit. Kind of a, hey, why aren't we doing more about this, about all of the idol worship going on here in the city? Like, what's, what's going on? Could, could Paul have been doing some of that? Or was Paul doing his standard gospel proclamation? We're not, we're not really sure. Um, but he went in and, and did what he normally does. But we also get this, this other little tidbit. He also went to the marketplace. Paul didn't just stay in the synagogue. He didn't just stay in his, in his comfortable circle. No, he, he moved out. He moved out from the comfort of the synagogue into the marketplace. Now, was he, what did this look like? Well, in Greece at the time, and in Athens in particular, philosophers would go to the marketplace and they would stand on street corners and they would hold court. They would, they would teach. They would talk. They would proclaim. This was probably what Paul did as he just kind of went out there took his soapbox, set it up on the corner, and, and started talking. And he was, he was talking about this weird stuff. He was talking about this God named Christos, Jesus. He was talking about this God named Resurrection. He, they were like, what is this dude doing? Um, we get this description that, that they said... Uh, you know, they wanted to know what this babbler was trying to say. Now, this, this term babbler was also applied to Socrates. They called Socrates 
a babbler because they didn't really like what he had to say either. This was, this was a pretty derisive kind of thing. And, and, it, and he's engaging with two different streams of, of philosophy, popular philosophy at the time. He's interacting with the Epicureans and he's interacting with the Stoics. Now the Epicureans, uh, these, this was a philosophy that said, yeah, there's divine being kind of a, almost a uh, theistic, just a, a straight theism. This idea that, yeah, there's, there's some sort of divine being or beings. They're not involved in our world. They kind of got things started, you know, and, and let us run. And our whole goal is to simply try to experience joy. Try to be happy, you know. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's kind of, kind of the Epicurean way. Um, and so when you've got Paul talking about Jesus and the resurrection and all of that kind of stuff, that, that probably made them uncomfortable. They really probably didn't, ha- didn't like much of what Paul had to say. And then you had the Stoics who were much more popular. Um, Stoicism today is experiencing quite the renaissance. It's, it's, it seems to be popping up everywhere. Guys like Marcus Aurelius and, and, and that whole thing was super popular amongst the Romans. And this was just kind of an idea of, you know, if you live, if you live life well, things will go well for you. You know, to be in the moment, to pay attention, right? To kind of quell your emotions and not be controlled by your emotions, but be controlled more by reason. And so these were the ones who some of the commentators think that probably said, yeah, we want to hear more about this. This is interesting stuff. And so what they do? They took them to the Areopagus, to the council. At the end of the passage is, is what it says. Now, was this a council like the Jerusalem council? Probably not. This was probably just a group of people who are interested in the latest ideas, sitting around, debating and talking, where someone would get up and make a presentation and they would discuss it, right? Now, we get about a two and a half minute message or sermon here from Paul. And uh, like every other sermon in the book of Acts, this is the cliff notes. Paul was not known for being short-winded or concise. Paul was known for being long-winded, and using lots of confusing words and saying lots of confusing and hard things. We find that out from Peter, right, in his letter. At the end of, I can't remember if it's either First or Second Peter, where he says, you know, our brother Paul, who writes things that many of us find difficult to understand. Um, so Paul, Paul was not known for being concise. So we get this little short Cliff's Notes version of what he said at the Areopagus. And, and it is amazing. This, I would argue, is Paul at the height of his powers. Paul here does, does something I wish I could, I could do. I wish I was more like Paul. You see, when Paul, if you go back and you read through his earlier speeches, almost all of them... You know, almost all of them were to, were to Jewish or God-fearing audiences. What does he do? He traces the entire story of the people of God, right? He starts, 
starts in Genesis, starts with Abraham, and works his way all the way through and talks about David and, you know, and then finally gets to Jesus. And, and it's this whole big picture of, of the story of Scripture. It's amazing. But now here he is, standing in the Areopagus with a whole bunch of people that don't know the Jewish Scriptures. They don't know about Abraham. They don't know about Adam and Eve. They don't know about Moses. They don't know about David. They don't know about any of that stuff. What they know is that there is some divine, there's something divine out in the world. There's something bigger than them. And so they have all these altars. And in particular, Paul hones in on one. It says, to the unknown God. You see, the Greeks, the Greeks were so concerned about trying to find and worship the right God that they had one even to the they had an altar even to the unknown God. Just in case. It was kind of a, a cover their bases kind of moment, right? Well, just in case we missed one, here, here, here's the altar to the unknown God. Just in case. So what does Paul say? He says, I, I am going to proclaim to you what you don't know. You're worshiping something you don't know. But that's not even how he starts. How he starts is he looks for the good. He says, hey, here's this new culture that I'm in. Here's this new city that I'm in. And you know what? You know what I notice about all of you people? Do you know what I notice about you Athenians? You are religious in every way. Oh, your hunger and your thirst and your passion for truth and knowledge and knowing God. It is beautiful and it is good. He says, you are religious in every way. Now, so he starts, he starts by saying good things to them. He, he notices the good and the beautiful in their culture. This is coming from a man who just moments before we learned was heartbroken, was distressed over all of the idols that he saw in the city. We might expect as American Christians that when Paul showed up at the Areopagus, he'd get up there and go, you dirty, filthy idolaters. You're going to hell. Right? I mean, isn't that kind of... That's kind of the way a lot of, a lot of our American evangelicalism rolls. Right? We, we come out swinging, baby. We're going to find who's our enemy and let's go. And he could have. He could have. And you know what? Maybe we would have read it and gone, wow, boy, that's, that's great. He was a fighter. He was, he was fighting those idolaters. That a babe, Paul. Nope, that's not what he did. He came in with, he led with grace. He led with mercy. He led with, with kindness. You might even say he led lovingly. Oh, I see you are religious in every way. Now, he didn't stop there, right? He didn't just stop with that. No, he went on to say, you have an altar to an unknown God, so you are worshiping something you don't even know. You're worshiping in ignorance. Hey, I am going to proclaim to you now this unknown God. Right? Now notice, notice what is 
it's very important to Paul because Paul is communicating the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to a people that have no context. They have no biblical context. They have no understanding of, of the scriptures. And so there is so many different ways Paul could go with preaching this gospel. But what does he think is most important? Two things. Number one, that the unknown God that he is proclaiming to them is the God of creation. He is the God that made all the things. He is not only the God that made all of the things, He is the God that gave you life and breath and everything. He is a good creator, a loving creator. He is the creator God. This is super important to Paul. Notice what's not important to Paul when it comes to the creator God. He doesn't say the God who created the world in six days. And did this and did that. And said it was, he didn't recount all of that. That stuff doesn't matter to him. What he cares about is simply the idea, the concept that the God we are talking about is the God who creates. Is the God who blesses you with life and breath and everything. That is what matters to Paul. Number one. He is the creator God. And we move inside of Him, right? And what's amazing is Paul quotes two people. He quotes two writers in this discussion of the creator God. Neither of them are Bible people. He does not quote Scripture. What does he quote? He quotes Greek writers. He quotes their own people back to them. In verse 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being. That was quoted to, that was um, a, a philosopher named Epimenides, a Cretan of all people. But he quotes, he quotes their own guy back to him. And then, he even, then it says, and as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And this is from uh, the Stoic philosopher Eridus. So, you see, Paul, Paul doesn't even bring in Genesis. He could have. He could have said, my, in my history, we have, you know, in the beginning, God created. He didn't do that. No, what he did is he found the good and the beautiful and the true in their own culture and said, look, you guys get this already. Your own, your own philosophers, your own poets have said this very thing. That there is the Creator God. We are His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being. These are good and beautiful truths. And we need to think about what those good and beautiful truths mean. What they mean is that all of these idols are not gods. All of these idols are in a very real sense worthless. None of these idols can create by definition, right? He says, if God is the creator God, then this God cannot be fashioned by human hands. This God does not live in temples. Uh-oh. Got to imagine his Jewish friends hearing that uh, might have gotten a little bent, right? Because here he is again 
going, going at even the core of his own faith. This creator God is bigger than all of this stuff. This creator God in whom we move and live and have our being is, oh, he is above us, beyond us, outside of us. He does not live in temples made by human hands. He is not crafted out of gold and silver and wood. These, this is a God that created, was, but was not created. Huge, important distinctions. You see, this is fundamental to Paul's understanding of who God is. That God is the Creator. And he finds evidence of those truths within the context of their culture. He says, this is good and beautiful and true. And then what's the second thing that Paul thinks is very important, absolutely critical? Resurrection. Resurrection. You see, resurrection is the proof of everything. Resurrection is the whole thing that, that the Jesus deal is is founded on, it's grounded on the resurrection. If the resurrection doesn't happen, then this is all ridiculous stupidity. It doesn't mean anything. It's just another thing. The resurrection is the other thing that matters. So in some sense, you could say, what matters to, to Paul is, is the creator God and the recreator God. Right? This God who creates and this God who resurrects. This God who can bring life from death. It is, it is on resurrection's back that justice is built. Justice comes out of resurrection. It all flows from resurrection. He bookends his entire speech with the creator God and the resurrecting God. Notice what's not there. There is no mention of the name Jesus. There is no mention of the name Christ. There is no mention of the Spirit. There is no mention of a whole bunch of things. There isn't even, he doesn't even use the word sin. He uses the word ignorance and he uses the word repent, but he doesn't use the word sin. He doesn't, he, in, nowhere in here, to this group of people who know nothing about the God of the Bible, does he say, you're a bunch of dirty sinners. You're going to hell. You need to place your faith in Jesus, pray this prayer, and get saved. Isn't that fascinating? Because for so many of us, when we think of what is the gospel, what do we absolutely need to communicate? We think we need those things. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We need to identify the God. Who is the God? The God is the creator God. And we need to identify the second thing, resurrection. Those are the things that matter. If we have those two things, the creator God and the resurrection, everything else falls into line. Everything else begins to make sense. These are the things upon which salvation rests. It says at the end here, it says that that 
You know, it says some of them sneered after hearing about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them said, we want to hear you again. And at that, Paul left the council, and some became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, what do we do with that little bit? What were they believing? Well, they were believing in the, they, they were believing in the Creator God that brings about resurrection. Now, certainly, certainly, Paul went on to teach them more. Paul went on to teach them about Jesus. Paul went on to teach them about the Spirit. Paul went on to teach them about growing in their faith. Paul went on to teach them these things, right? But, but at the outset, he was concerned about the critical things, the things that really mattered, the Creator God and the resurrection. How do we proclaim an unknown God to a people who... To, to a people. Well, we talk about the Creator God, we talk about the resurrection. This is what matters. This is how we help people move and grow. Now, there are some other principles in here. One, and the other principles that we begin to see is, is we use their language, right? And sometimes we think of language only as, was it English, was it Chinese, was it Greek, was it Italian? What language? No, no, no. Language is way more than, than that. Language is what kind of illustrations and metaphors work, right? Like, if I'm talking to my dad, and I want to try to make a point, or I want to try to make some connection, you best believe I better try to pull some sort of 1960s, 1970s song lyric. Maybe from Elvis or the Beatles or, you know, some, the Monkees. You know, something along those lines. I better, I better make a poll like that. Because you drop any word in front of my dad and he starts singing a song. That music is his language. Right? My, me and my friends, it's movies. It's films. We, we talk back and forth in movie lines all day long. You know? It just is what it is. Movies are our language. For some people, it's books, literature, poetry, sports. Right? My, sports is another one of my languages. I have to be very intentional not to use sports analogies all the time. Right? It, this, is, this is our language. Paul spoke to them using their language. What is the language of your neighbors? Do you know it? Are your neighbors into books, poetry, are they into movies, television? Are they into music? What, what are your, what's your neighbor's language? Are they into hunting, fishing, camping? Find, we find those connections and those things that are good and beautiful and true within those, within those languages. The other thing we see is that Paul didn't dump on them. Right? He didn't just walk in and be like, 
You guys are just missing it, morons. Right? He identified the good and the beautiful. Do you look around this world and see the good and the beautiful? Or do you only see those things that are ugly and gross and enrage you? And then the last thing is that Paul, when he communicated his message to them, he didn't talk about what he was against. He talked about what he was for. He, if you read through this, this is, this, is a, this is a message of positivity, right? He stood for something. He said, I believe in the creator God. I believe in the resurrecting God. This is what I believe. This is what I proclaim to you. This is your unknown God. The creator, the creating God and the resurrecting God. He didn't go and challenge Zeus. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't go and challenge all of their false gods. All he simply said was, this is the God. And he, and he communicated what he was for. As we move about in our world, and as we are seeking to proclaim Christ through our lives and our words, are we known as a people that are for something? Or are we known as a people that are simply against things? Unfortunately, I think if we were to take a poll, we would probably find that Christians are mostly known as people who are against things. We're against Disney. We're against Target. We're against this. We're against that. We're against, we're against, we're against. We were the inventors and the creators of cancel culture. Mom's against this. Mom's against that. We're against rock and roll. We're against Harry Potter. We're against... Pick all the things that Christians have been against. And Paul is probably shaking his head going, guys, what a missed opportunity. There is good and beauty and truth in all of those things if you just open your minds to see it, open your eyes to see it, point out where the gospel is breaking through. You see, every good story, every good story that's ever been told is simply a telling of the Creator God and the resurrecting God. I have not yet found a good story that cannot in some way, shape, or form be tied to the creating God and the resurrecting God. It's all tied to it. C.S. Lewis said, of course it is. I mean, this is a, my paraphrase of C.S. Lewis. He says, of course it is. We're all created in the image of God. So certainly the stories we tell are all going to be reflected of the creator God. If we had something that was unique Indifferent, that had no connecting points, says that's when I'd be worried. That's when I'd be thinking that, that I'm worshiping an idol. So, so how are we doing in these things? Are we a people who are standing for things or just simply standing against things? Are we a people that know the language of our neighbors? Movies, stories, television shows, their music. Do we, and do we lead with love? In other words, are we looking for the good and the beautiful or are we simply looking for the things that make us angry and the things that we are against? Because what happens is if we, if we lead with love, it turns out that almost naturally leads us to being a people who are for things as opposed to simply being a people who are against things. 
And when we look at Paul, who walks into a city where his heart is broken, where he is distressed because of all of the idols, he doesn't stand before them and chastise them. No, he leads with love. I see you are a people who are very religious. I'm going to proclaim to you this thing that you don't even know. This God you worship that you don't know, I proclaim to you now. He led with love. He led with kindness. You see, this, this is where we live today. We live in Athens. We live, we move about in the Areopagus and in the marketplace. This is, this is our model. So my challenge to you is, is just to ask yourself those three questions. How are you doing? Do you, know, do you know your neighbor's language? Are you standing for something as opposed to just standing against things? And are you leading with love in your conversations? If we, if we could just evaluate those three things over the course of the next week, man, it is going to help us take some good steps. It really will. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Paul that he shows us the way to communicate the gospel amongst a people who, who don't know you and who don't have context for you. Lord, we pray that we might be a people who lead with love, who know our neighbor's language, and that we would stand for something, and that we would stand for you, the creator God, the resurrecting God, because you alone are worthy. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.